I'm going to talk on confession today, my little children. And you are all innocent, you do not need it, so I'll begin the most important part of the talk by telling you some stories about confession. Then you can sleep. Canon Mullen of Scotland told me that he was hearing confessions one evening and a little boy came to confession and the canon said to him, why didn't you come to confession this afternoon when I was hearing confessions for children? He said, I didn't have any sins, I had to wait for some. Some lumberjacks in Canada decided to go to confession. They had not been there in a few years. So they sent the bravest of them all in first. And he said, Father, I've committed every sin a man can commit. Well, did you ever commit murder? No, he said, that's right. That's one sin I never committed. Well, you see, you have not examined your conscience properly go outside the box and examine your conscience, then come back. So as he stepped out of the box, he saw the long line of lumberjacks outside. He said, no use tonight, boys, just hearing murder cases. <laughs> and I was hearing confessions once a little boy came in and, among the other things, he said, I threw peanuts into the swamp. I didn't pay any attention to it because I didn't think I knew my theology well enough to understand all of those sins. And another boy came in and, among other things, I pushed peanuts into the swamp. And I heard that 10 or 12 times. And the next boy came in and I said, I suppose you pushed peanuts into the swamp. No, he said, I'm peanuts. You liked that one, didn't you? <laughs> well, we can't be telling you stories all day. So we must get to the older children. And may I begin by telling you that we are living in about the first age in the history of the world that has denied guilt and sin. Everyone today believes he's immaculately conceived. There are no sinners. We're just patients, but we're not penitents. Interesting it is that Carl Menninger of the Menninger Institute of Psychiatry in Kansas has just written a book saying, what has happened to sin? curious that as the moral theologians and our catechisms drop the idea of sin, a psychiatrist is reminding us that there is sin. 
He, for example, has said that the theologians gave up sin and then the lawyers took it up and sin became an, a crime. And then the legalists gave it up, psychiatrists picked it up, and then it became a complex. Now, sin is a reality in the world, and we have to face it, for we are all sinners, everyone. As a matter of fact, we cannot begin to receive the mercy of God until we recognize that we are sinners. Now, what happens when we repress guilt and sin? And we do that. Men sin and they pay no attention to it. Same with women. Well, it has a tremendous effect on our mind and sometimes on our body. When we do not bring our sins to the surface and confess them to the good Lord. You have heard of transplants in medicine, a kidney transplant, a heart transplant, and you've often read too that the transplant was not effective or the heart transplant was not effective. Why? Because the body resisted it. There are antibodies in our organism that will not assimilate and take hold of a new organism. Now our soul is that way. It has antibodies. And when any sin gets into the soul, then we're disturbed. Mind is unhappy. It's very much like having a broken bone. The bone hurts. Why? Because the bone is not where it ought to be. And when our conscience is not where it ought to be, then we suffer. We have a disturbance of conscience. We're uneasy. We may try to cover it up by drink and amusement and so forth. But in moments of quiet, the guilt is there. Recall some of the effects of guilt as portrayed for us by Shakespeare. Now just think of it. Shakespeare was born in 1564. I hope that was it. That's coming out of my subconsciousness. Don't look it up. But I think that I was in second year college. I learned that Shakespeare was born in 1564 and died in 1616. Well, in any case, what is important is the fact that hundreds of years before we had psychiatry, he tells of a complex, a psychosis in the mind of Macbeth and a neurosis in the mind of Lady Macbeth. Now, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth had contrived to kill the king in order to seize the throne. After the murder, Macbeth always seems to see a knife before him. He said, what is this I see before me? A knife with a handle toward my hand? There was no knife. This was a psychosis. 
This was the way the guilt was coming out. Lady Macbeth, she washed her hands every quarter of an hour. She saw blood on the hands. And she asked, are not all the waters of the seven seas enough to wash this blood incarnadine from my hands? There was no blood on her hands. This was the effect on her mind of the suppression of guilt. A woman once came to me about her brother. She said, he's been going to doctors for about four or five years, and he is no better. His weight has gone down to 90 pounds. And would you see him? And I said, if his trouble is mental, I cannot help him. He belongs with a psychiatrist. If, however, there is a moral basis for his condition, then I can help him. The man came, he weighed about 90 pounds, frail, fearful. And I said, talk to me for a half hour. I will not interrupt you. He talked for about 40 minutes. And I said, how much money did you steal? He said, I didn't steal. I said, how much was it? He said, I resent that. I am no thief. I did not steal. How much was it? He said, $3,000. He said, how did you know I stole? I said, I didn't know you stole. Well, why did you ask me? Well, I said, as you talked, you told me that whenever you put money in the collection box, you always wiped it off first. And I thought, perhaps you had dirty money. Yes, he said he had stolen $3,000. Well, we made arrangements to pay it back, and his health picked up. This was the guilt on his soul. Just think, my dear ladies, of how many mentally disturbed women we are going to have in the United States in the next 10 or 15 years when the guilt of abortion begins to attack the mind and soul. For the present, they justify it on the grounds that everyone is doing it, and it's only scar tissue anyway. One doctor said to a girl who came in and said, well, it's only a little scar tissue. Would you remember it? Would you dismember it? And uh, the doctor said, what did you intend to call the scar tissue? So in years from now, the guilt will come out in a peculiar way. Though at present, there may not be any. The guilt may not manifest itself at once. That is very evident in the course of the life of King David. David was one day on the top of his palace in the penthouse, and he looked across the street, and he saw a woman on the adjoining penthouse, Bethsabee. And he asked Bethsabee to come over and see his etchings. And he loved Bethsabee, not wisely, but too well. And she's found with child. 
The husband, Uriah, was away at war, away at war. David called him back. As king, he could do that. And he said, go home to your wife. He said, no, I'm at war. We're not allowed to be with a wife when we're fighting. David then got him drunk, said, go home. He slept at David's front door. David was trying to blame, blame the paternity onto the husband. So finally, finding that he couldn't get rid of him that way, he said to the general, put him in the front lines. Men have to die in battle. Maybe Uriah will be killed. Uriah was killed. It didn't bother David in the least. Until about seven or eight months after, the prophet Nathan came to him. And he said, Nathan, I have a problem. He said, David, I have a problem. And you as king must settle it. There was a poor man who had one tiny little ewe lamb. Next door to this poor man lived a rich man who stole the poor lamb and made a banquet for his rich friends. And David immediately became interested in social justice. David said, this shall not be. He shall pay with his life and the property shall be restored fourfold. And Nathan said, thou art the man. You took the ewe lamb of Uriah. And you killed that ewe lamb. The ewe lamb was Bessabee, I mean. And you have taken this lamb away from the husband. And that was the moment when David sat down and wrote the famous Psalm 50. Have mercy on me, O Lord, have mercy on me or I think it's maybe 51 in the new scriptures. You see, sometimes, now not always, but sometimes we can cover up our want of individual justice by a great love of social justice. Remember when Judas was at the banquet room of Simon? The woman came in and poured ointment on the feet of our blessed Lord. Judas said, why this waste? Why not give this money to the poor? Well, you can imagine Judas going on making an attack against our blessed Lord, saying, for example, I heard you on the Mount of Beatitude say, blessed are the poor. Where's your love of the poor now? Have you forgotten all of those people that are living on hanging shacks in the road between Jericho and Jerusalem? Remember the days when we walked through the inner city of Jerusalem? Have you no interest in those poor? Look at these humble fishermen shacks here at Capernaum. Where's your love of the poor? Our Lord said, Judas, you have the poor with you always. Me, not always. Was Judas interested in the poor? No. He was robbing 
the apostolic purse. And that's the way he covered it up. So when we suppress our guilt, it is there for eternity, unless it is forgiven. When it's forgiven, it's completely blotted out. Well, how do we now, through the mercy of God and the fullness of faith in Christ, how are our sins forgiven? By confession. What is confession? Nudity. Nudity of the soul. Stripping ourselves of all false excuses and shams and pretenses and revealing ourselves as we really are. Do you know, my good people, that as we have given up examination of conscience and confession, that nudity increases in the world, physical nudity? Let us study it for a moment. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, they were naked, but not ashamed. Why? Because they were covered with the aura of God's grace. It, as it were, shone round about them robed in glory and hence there was no sense at all of nakedness after they fell they perceived themselves to be naked why they lost the grace of god and then they had to be clothed now i could give you and i wish we had time but i'm not going to do it to tell you how their nakedness was covered up and to explain the mystery of it. Do you know how their nakedness was covered? Yes, fig leaves, I know, but they wilted. Their shame was revealed. How was it covered up? God made for them the skins of animals. God did something. It was done vicariously. An animal was killed, not them. And thirdly, it involved the shedding of blood. And I could take you all through the Old Testament and unfolding that story. But the point is that they were naked and ashamed because they'd lost the grace of God. In our modern world, we're bringing back nudity, trying to get back into the Garden of Eden without walking up the hill of Calvary. And it cannot be done. So what is confession? It's another kind of nudity, not epidemic or epidermic nudity, but ethical nudity, in which we just say to the dear Lord, this is the way I am. I'm a miserable sinner. And when we make that confession, then what happens is what might be called the recycling of human garbage. We hear a great deal today about the recycling of garbage, but I'm speaking about the recycling of human garbage. 
When you go to confession, have your sins forgiven by the blood of Christ, incidentally, applied through the priest. When you go to confession and have your sins forgiven, there is always, of course, an effect of that sin that remains. Suppose, suppose that I told one of these little children that every time they did anything wrong, they were to nail, put a nail in a board. Can you imagine that? Every time you did wrong, disobeyed your mother, for example, you were to drive a nail in the board. And then every time your mother forgave you and you said, I'm sorry, the mother would tell you, pull the nail out now. Is there anything left? What's left? What? Hole, yes. A hole. That's the effect of sin. See how wise these little children are? So that even though the sin is forgiven, we have to make some reparation for it. And that's the reason you're giving a penance and confession to fill up the holes. But we do not have to make adequate reparation for sin because we have the mercy of the saints, and I mean the intercession of the saints and the mercy of our blessed Lord. But when we go to confession, then our lives are completely changed. I'm going to give you some examples of how lives are changed by submitting to the mercy of God. There was a man who used to come into a church in London, St. Patrick's Church. Every morning when I would open the church, he would come in and take one of the back pews, kneel down, not go to communion. He would come in about 7 o'clock, not go to communion until about 9. He never used a prayer book. And he would meditate until about 11.30 in the morning, then go out, come back again in the afternoon, and stay until the church closed at night. Never spoke to anyone. After noticing this for several months, I said to him, if you, were you always as good as you are now? That was a test question because if he said yes I knew he would I would know he wasn't any good <laughs> and he said well considering the graces that I have received I am a thousand times worse now than I ever was then he told me about himself he was an alcoholic and he said I was such an alcoholic that I used to take off my shoe shoes at the pub door the saloon door the pub door and sell them for a drink. But, he said, I would take the pledge every Ash Wednesday and keep it until Easter Sunday. And he did that every year, he says. Then one day he said to himself, if I can be good for 40 days, why can't I be good for 40 years? So I decided to be good for 40 years. But he said it wasn't quite that easy. I went into Maiden Lane Church and I remembered him very well, and I dropped into Maiden Lane Church about nine months ago in London just to say a prayer for this good man, though I'm sure he doesn't need it. And he came into the church. There are three steps leading up from the Covent Garden section of London to the 
main floor of the church. And he knelt in the front pew for benediction. And his father, Carney, laid hold of the monstrance to begin the benediction. He said there came over him overwhelming passion for drink and for vice. He said if the temptations of a lifetime were concentrated in one moment, they could not equal that agony. And he said it was so great that I couldn't stand it. So I bounded out of the pew, ran down the middle aisle, and I stumbled on the three steps. And as the benediction bell rang, he said, I tore out my heart and I turned around and I said, dear Lord, forgive me, I will go to confession. And he said, I have had no drink since and I spend my life in prayer. How many hours do you pray a day? Oh, he said about 18. I said, what do you consider a really good day? He said, 24. I live, he said, in the same dive that I lived in when I was an alcoholic. And many a night, I will kneel alongside of my cot all night long praying for all the alcoholics. This was recycled garbage that the Lord loved. No wonder our Lord said there's more joy in heaven for one sinner doing penance than 99 just who need not penance. Then another story. What, another story? Yes, all right, another story. This is a story about a girl. The last one is about a boy. I received... A a call from two little girls who came to the rectory to go immediately to an apartment house near the Hudson River. And they said, Kitty is dying. Who is Kitty? They said, don't you know Kitty? Everybody knows Kitty. I inquired about her illness and the little girl said she's dying. I took the Blessed Sacrament and Holy Oils. I climbed up five dingy flights of stairs to one of the dirtiest rooms that I was ever in. Meat, fat, papers, rags on the floor and over in the corner, a, a dirty cot, this young girl on it and very sick. Are you Kitty? Yes. Everybody knows me. And I said, Kitty, would you like to make your peace with the good Lord? And she said, no, I can't because I'm the worst girl in the city of New York. No, I said, you're not the worst girl in the city of New York because the worst girl in the city of New York says I'm the best girl in the city of New York. I begged and pleaded with her to go, and she said, no, I can't. I'm too rotten. She said, look at my arms, all black and blue. That's from my husband. If I don't bring in enough money from the streets, he beats me. 
Now he's poisoned me. Now dying of poison. And I rehearsed for her the parables of our blessed Lord, and finally she went to confession. But I had not anointed her, because it took so long to convince her of mercy. And the poison was getting into the different areas of the brain. And as it did, it, she seemed to have the impression of losing the external organ. For example, she would reach for her ear and say, Mother, here's my ear, and you keep it when I'm gone. And here, Anne, there was a girl who came in the room whom she begged to give up her life. And here's my eye. And, and she would say, here's my tongue, you keep that. And I realized then that she was very serious. And I anointed her, and immediately she was all right. And I said, sorry, Kitty, you're back in this world again. And she said, yes, just to prove that I can be better. So she became an apostle among the very people with whom she worked. And I would be hearing confessions on a Saturday night, open a slide, Father, this is the girl that Kitty told you about. Father, this is the boy that Kitty told you about. One night, she came to the rectory and she said, I have a girl who committed murder. Where is she? She's in the church. I said, no, the church is locked. Well, she said she's across the street then, seated on the stoop. So I went to the door and called her over. And in a short time, she went to confession. And that was the way that Kitty continued to exercise the apostolate of mercy after having been forgiven. Now we have all enjoyed it. We are the most fortunate people in the world because when we're burdened, we can go to the good Lord and receive an external sign that's needed, an external sign that we have been forgiven. Sin is not the worst thing in the world. The worst thing in the world is the denial of sin. If I am blind and deny there's any such thing as light, will I ever see? If I am deaf and deny there's any such thing as sound, will I ever hear? And if I deny that I am a sinner, how can I ever be forgiven? So worse than sin is the denial of sin, which is our modern attitude toward life. If then your soul is burdened, Take it to the Lord. He died for you. He will forgive you. And just as there's hardly anything more refreshing than a good bath, so there's nothing spiritually more refreshing 
than an absolution. The beauty of it is we can start all over again. The Lord's mercy is unlimited. But we just have to have trust in him. So I will leave you this consoling thought. If you had never sinned, you never could call Jesus Savior.